Jumping back to mental and emotional wellness for day three of our January wellness series, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever cared too much about what other people thought of you? Have you cared so much to the point where it was proving crippling? Lord knows I have, and when I read the title of Dr. Michael Gervais' book, The First Rule of Mastery, Stop Worrying About What Other People Think of You, I knew I had to have him on the show. He writes that caring too much about what others think is the single greatest constrictor of human potential. During our conversation, I muse about how much I would give to get that time back that I've spent worried about this and how much I could do with that time. In the book, he introduces a concept called FOPO, or fear of other people's opinions, which he calls a hidden epidemic. We all have a basic human need to belong, but it's when we let others control our lives that we know we need to make a change. And I hope for all of us that 2024 is the year we begin to or continue to live our authentic lives, not chained to what others think of us. My guest today has one of the coolest jobs in the world. Dr. Michael Gervais is a high-performance psychologist, and he teaches us through this book and this conversation that the key to leading a high-performance life is to redirect our attention from the world outside us to the world inside us. He has worked with some of the top performers in the world, everyone from MVPs in sports to world-renowned artists and musicians to Fortune 100 leaders and teams. His clients include world record holders, Olympians, Fortune 100 CEOs, and tons of bold-faced names that you've heard of. He is the co-creator of the Performance Science Institute at the University of Southern California, and he too is a podcaster as he hosts the Finding Mastery podcast, which is a great listen if you're not familiar with it. Some of his corporate clients include little-known mom-and-pop shops like Microsoft, Amazon, and AT&T, and he's been featured on NBC, ABC, CNN, Fox, ESPN, NFL Network, and in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, ESPN Magazine, and more. And he teaches that there is a huge connection between the mind and human performance, and we're delving into it right now. Michael, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with you. And um, I, I hold you in this show in high regard. So thank oh, you for including me. Thank you so much. That always means so much to me to hear because you put these episodes out. And I mean, I know based off of analytics that people are listening, but you always wonder, is anybody listening out there? And so it's always so good to get that feedback. So thank you. <laughs> yes, Well, the book drew me in, as I just told you offline a minute ago, because of its title and its subtitle, to be honest with you. So the full title is The First Rule of Mastery, Stop Worrying About What People think of you. So that in in and of itself, worrying about what people think of me has historically been very difficult for me to, to stop. So why is this so critically important that in, as the title of the book says, it is the first rule of mastery? Well, let's, let's pull back for um, some context. And I'm so pleased to know that I'm not alone and that you too have struggled with like managing the opinions of other people and at least considering that when it comes to your choices of words or behaviors. It's been a serious problem throughout my life, like debilitatingly so. Yeah. So that's, so what happened for me is um, I, I recognized it early that I was struggling trying to look cool rather than be me. Mm -hmm. And I was embarrassed by it. I recognized it when I was 16 and I was embarrassed by it. I knew that that wasn't the right 
quote unquote way to do life. But I didn't want to be the weird one and, and talk about it with anyone. And so I, I kind of kept it quiet. And and then I found this career path that I just fell in love with. And it's the um, high performance psychology, the study and the application of the science of excellence. And for me, I've come to understand that excellence is really about being at home with yourself wherever you are. Mm-hmm. And and that's the exact opposite of trying to manage approval from other people. Yeah. So being at home with yourself is what excellence is. Mm-hmm. And the way that you express that through a craft, whatever that craft might be, it could be words, it could be writing, it could be conversation, it could be, you know, canvases of your choice. That when you can artistically express yourself and you can authentically be yourself, that's the path of mastery. Mm-hmm. And the orthogonal kind of management of approval and the fearing of rejection is something that pulls us deeply away from being our very best. And come to find out, working with world's best across multiple sports and industries, they too have it, Rachel. (laughs) So we're not alone. And what ended up, yeah, what ended up happening is I just wrote this thoughtful piece on HBR and yeah, I remember reading later, about they, that. It was a huge oh, you did, viral yeah. hit. Yeah. I know. And so 12 months later, they called and they said, hey, it was the number one downloaded article 12 months in a row. Wow. Let's 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 invest it. You know, invest in it. it resonates, let's write a book. Right? It resonates with yes. people. Yeah. So what's happening, come to find out from the research perspective, is that you know, our brains are designed to mobilize, to um, keep us safe. And we know the fight, flight, freeze mechanism when there's a, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, there was a saber tooth tiger in the, in the bush or a wildebeest running after us or a, a warring tribe. Like our body is designed to mobilize, to go, mm-hmm. right. To run away or to run toward. And what we, what we, we've got that ancient brain and that ancient mechanism, but in modern times, we don't have wildebeest and saber tooths, but what we do have is a carryover from hundreds of thousands of years ago is if you and I were in the tribe together, Rachel, and we screwed up, mm-hmm. we, we were, we were hunting or gathering, or we we're doing whatever our job was, or we were just creating so much noise to the culture of the tribe that the elder said, you know what, Rachel, you know what, Mike, you two got to go. Mm-hmm. You're out of here. Like you, you don't belong here. Mm-hmm. That that was a near death sentence. Yeah. So what the carryover is, is in modern times, we still have that same mechanism, which is we're scanning the world to find danger. And the most salient danger for most of us is the opinions of others. Mm-hmm. It's the potential rejection that was a near death sentence a couple hundred thousand years ago. It's not a death sentence anymore, but we still have that same ba- basic mechanism. And the idea that belonging is an important need for people, well, it's actually not being rejected. Yeah. And belonging is safety. Yeah. But at the cost. Yeah. yeah, But at the cost potentially of living the good, authentic life. Because if we're constantly monitoring, are we okay? Am I okay? Am I being, you know, accepted, rejected? What's actually happening in the opinions of others? Mm -hmm. I lose my ability to be honest with the words I choose, the first principles that I'm working from, the purpose in my life. And, and we're playing this secondary game. And then unfortunately, I think it hit a nerve for so many people because so many of us mm-hmm. are playing the secondary game to belong oh, yeah. rather than be about it. 
Yeah. So. I mean, so much to say it's a prison and I, and I'm 37 now. So I've, I've worked through this. I've had about five years of therapy, really intensely working through this and, and the, the, the disease to please, I think is what Oprah Winfrey calls it, which she suffers from that as well. A couple of thoughts that I was thinking of, as you were speaking, if I could get back all the time I've wasted worrying about what others think of me or how my performance was or whatever, I would be like, I would, I would love to have that time back. I'll just say that it would be amazing. The things I could do with it. And then secondly, one of my big things I've been working on is internal validation and not relying so much on that external validation, making validation an inside job. And because I think, and, and wouldn't you agree that when you are your true authentic self, that's when you're going to attract the best people into your life because they love, they love you and, and they like you for you. Wouldn't you agree with that? A thousand percent. Mm -hmm. And this is where it gets a little tricky. I love the idea of I can get time back. It's kind of like thinking oh about if gosh, I had a nickel yeah. for every time somebody said something, I'd be, mm -hmm. you know, it's that. Yeah. I'd and love so, that time back. I could write many books in that time, you know? Mm, I know. Yeah. I, I mean, so the cost is great. Yeah. The cost mm -hmm. is great. So this, the idea that, um, about authenticity is tricky and it get, the word gets thrown around a lot and to live and lead authentic authentically is trickier than it sounds because oftentimes the principles or the virtues or values that we're working from can sometimes be at odds mm -hmm. with one another. Like let's say somebody is, you go to a restaurant and you're, you're excited for a nice night out and the, the, the service is poor, the food quality is substandard and they get the order wrong and it's cold and it's late and whatever. Okay. And like, what is your authentic self? Is it to share your honest opinion or is it to just let it roll off your back and pour into the conversation with your friends? Yeah. Like, so what is the authentic self? And sometimes like when they're at odds, we're, we're not sure exactly what is real for us, but that's why we need to do two things. The first is to, to write down as a forcing function, what are the three to five values or virtues? There's a slight difference between the two, but you could think about them closely to the same. Write them down. What are the three to five virtues that matter to me that I want to work on being right now in this phase of my life? Mm -hmm. We do not need to get neck tattoos. We do not need to get them like tattooed on our back. But like for right now, what are the virtues and values that I'm going to be about that I want to practice? And that could change then, over the years, right? Sure. They, 100%. Hopefully you get good at that virtue. Sure. Let's sure. call it um, kindness. Mm -hmm. And then you get really good at it. And then you can add complexity and layers to it. Mm -hmm. But just like, so I come from elite sport and we front load our technical skill training and our physical training and our mental training. We don't leave one of those up to chance. And then we test ourselves on game day. So we're in the training of technical, physical, and mental training so that we can be about it and get free in, mm -hmm. in VUCA type environments, volatile, uncertain, complex, you know, ambiguous environments. Like, so, so we need to practice them. And if we're not practicing, let's call it a virtue or value that matters to you, then when you get into the, I don't know, the party, the, let's do a holiday party because we're in that season right now. Mm -hmm. And there's such a thing called pre-party anxiety. <laughs> You're walking yeah. to your friends yeah. and family, but you feel anxious. Yeah. And yeah. like, if you don't practice 
being about certain values and virtues, you walk into other settings like a party, a bit keyed up, a bit overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And that's a bit of a tragedy, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. the unsettled nature that that you carry with you in environments. That's kind of the quality of your life. And there is another way to do it. You can be fully grounded to your first principles. And once you're clear about what they are, then you go at the mental skills that will help you be about it. That's where mental skills training enters the conversation. That's good stuff. I want to, so, so much of what you write in the book is quotable. We'll get there. Don't worry. But I, you have a quote from Carl Jung in the book in that you chose to include. It says, which I love this, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. I want you to, I mean, that you did, this is not your quote, but you did choose to include it. What is that? I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. But can you talk to me about that for a moment? Because that's that's pretty interesting. So just unpack that a little bit for me. I was um, the last semester of my PhD program, and I'm getting ready to go into the world, um, you know, to to work with with individuals. And I was nervous, you know, like I just want I take the craft of psychology and the science of it very seriously because it, we're working in the invisible world, mm-hmm. and um, it's complex and it's complicated. It's both of those, and there's a lot of responsibility. I don't take myself seriously, but I do take the craft seriously. And so I, I lean over to my mentor um, kind of after uh, this is the, the president of the school and, and mentor. And I leaned over and I said, yeah, I've got a bunch of questions on how to do this. And so he said, yeah, sure. What do you, give me one. And I said, well, if somebody is like super anxious or very depressed, like I know what I'm supposed to do, but how do I, how do I actually be in that moment? Mm-hmm. And he kind of chuckled and he looks at me and he leans in and he says, everything you need to work on, Mike, is going to show up in the chair next to you. Mm-hmm. So your job is to keep feeling and listening and adjusting. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening in another person, whether it's joy, happiness, sadness, depression, addiction, whatever it might be, is going to be a triggering experience for you. So keep working on yourself and know that there's lots of ways to um to get better mm-hmm. and your job is to be your very best and when other people around you are feeling something pay attention because that's the stuff that you probably need to work on too and so that that's that's one way that i, I thought that that's that was the or, origin of my experience that led me to want to include that quote mm-hmm. from carl young which is like the stuff that's triggering in other people it's triggering in you for a reason. Pay attention so go to, to work it. On yeah. It. Pay yeah attention go to work to on it. it. Yeah, right. for sure. Well, we have just now made it to the opening line of the book. <laughs> so this is going to be a fun conversation. <laughs> so um, the opening line of the book is when we give more value to other people's opinions than our own, we live life on their terms, not ours, which is so true. So I'm wondering why do we willingly give that power away? And you, you touched on this a little bit, but does it connect back to the ancient brain? I know you write about that in the book. This is, this is something that is not just a 2023 thing. This is is, like you said, this goes back to the feeling of, of like psychological safety, correct? Yeah, that you're, you're nailing it. I mean, when we give more value to other people's opinions, like we're just trying to fit in. We're mm-hmm. trying to be accepted. We're trying to belong as opposed to um, really knowing what matters most to you. And so we talk about virtues and values. 
and if I were to add one more layer to it, when you when you take your virtues and values and you put them into a sentence structure, and I'll give you an example in a minute, um, they they turn into principles, first principles, if you will. And the, so let's do Dr. King Jr. and Malcolm X. Okay. Both of them, both of them wanted, you know, a sense of equality mm-hmm. for um for people. And but they went at it in very different ways. Very different. And ways, so yes. yeah, completely different. So so it's the shaping of the principle, I'm sorry, the shaping of the values that makes it a first principle to you. And the the highest way to go through life is to be deeply clear about your virtues and values, how you form them into first principles, and then holding the standard to being true to those to those first principles. So it's it's a self-referencing mechanism that matters a lot. And then the people's opinions, it's the the, the subtitle of the book is is it's not don't don't um, care about people's opinions. It's mm-hmm. not worrying about them. So it's an important difference. It, yes, it's a it, radically important. And what we want to do is we want to make sure that the people who care about us, who have invested in knowing you and want to really see your very best and have done something um, meaningful with their time, and so they've been in the amphitheater that have mat- that has mattered to them. So they they they're working to see and understand and support you, and they've done something pretty cool with their life. Those opinions, those are the reference points external that need to matter. But the highest, the 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 first um, opinion is the one that only you can calibrate. Was I honest in the way that I've lined up my thoughts, words, and actions? to my first principles. Mm-hmm. And again, first principles are resting on your virtues and values. So okay. it's a calibration, yeah, between your own understanding of did you do it right? Did you do thoughts, words and actions lined up to your first principles and how did we all have blind spots? How did the people who are really invested um how did they experience it? Mm-hmm. And so that's the calibration between the two. That's good. That's really good. I would say probably the chief concept in the book is called FOPO, which stands for fear of other people's opinions. Of course, this, I think I've, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is a playoff of FOMO, which is fear of missing out. This is a hidden epidemic, you write. It holds so many of us back. So I want to know the costs of having FOPO. And I want to quote you for a minute. You write, though FOPO doesn't meet the criteria of a clinical diagnosis, it creates significant distress and that it exhausts our system. So what is the cost of having FOPO, which again, listeners, is fear of other people's opinions? Well, the cost is is quite incredible when it comes to risk taking, because we're we're playing the secondary game, and you know we're not sure if we can really go for it because if they don't approve of the of the a potential mistake that you make that you could make, you make the choice to play it safe rather than to go for it. Mm-hmm. So it decreases risk taking. Um, it it subjugates us to approval rather than authenticity. It decreases creativity and innovation because to be creative and to innovate requires getting to the messy edge where it's not all buttoned up. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do, especially when something new is introduced to the world. And it might be by definition, um, 
uh, pushing against the grain of traditional ways of operating. So it decreases creativity, innovation, it, it, um, it reduces engagement um, and productivity in, in the workforce because you know the secondary game is played rather than the actual rolling up the sleeves to, to solve the challenges of the, the company's mission. So it, we, we, we play the secondary game, secondary game to be part of something as opposed to really advance the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so these are some, just some of the costs. And obviously like there's a real cost to mental health oh, is sure. that, yeah, when we're worrying about other people's opinions and it's just below the level of clinical anxiety, um, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. It's expensive to be in that frame of mind because um, it's like that the hard drive is running in the background. Am I okay? Am I okay? Are we okay? What do they think? What does she think? What does he think? Like, is it okay? And that's a very expensive way to go through life as opposed to the slipstream of being fully absorbed in the task at hand. Mm-hmm. And when you know that you're okay, you know, because you breathe, because you're trying your very best, because the mistakes you make um, are are a part of the, the way that you know, humans experience life and that you are trying to do, figure it out and do your very best. Like, and you're just okay. You don't need them to say, I see you. Mm-hmm. You're able to have a relationship with yourself. And then from that place, pour love into other people as mm-hmm. opposed to needing the love from them. And so that's where the, the negative impact on mental health can show up is that the ordering is wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons why public speaking is so overwhelming for people. Mm-hmm. Like when we go do, it's reported to be the, one of the greatest fears in modern times. And it's not because there's a, I don't know, there's not a sniper in the balcony, you know, like mm-hmm. it's just the opinions of other people. And when we're walking on stage and we have the ordering wrong, we're trying to flex a certain way or perform a certain way, present a certain way so that we'll be faithful found favorable as mm-hmm. opposed to being grounded to use your words earlier and then to pour into um, the people that have given their time. And so the, when the ordering is off um, again, it just gets more complicated to live your own life. Well, piggybacking off of that, you write in the book that caring so much about what other people think is the single greatest constrictor of human potential. As I said earlier, if I could just get that time back, you know, like what, what I could do with all the hours I spent worrying about what other people thought of me and something that's incredibly fascinating in the book. I find this so interesting and a little bit disheartening, honestly, is that it doesn't it, focusing on the external opinions does not go away with success necessarily. Right. So you cite Beethoven who, once he finally stopped trying to manage other people's perception of him, he regained control of his life. So I want to know why you chose to use him as an example and why, because it's true in my life too. I've thought, well, because I'm a writer. Well, if I get published in this magazine, then I'm going to be validated somehow and not care what others think of me. Or even when I was in high school, I remember this so vividly, and this is so stupid in hindsight, but I was like, well, if I get on homecoming court, then I will stop caring about what people think of me and leave and live the rest of my senior year in peace that I I did. Well, I did make it on homecoming court. Who cares anymore? But that didn't stop. So it has to be a very it has to be a calculated choice to do this. No amount, you can disagree with me because you wrote the book on this, but no amount of success 
no amount of money is going to take it away unless you do the work to take it away. It, would you agree with that? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. I think that it actually, you know, in I'll use a physical analogy is that um, all humans have like a, a unique body to themselves mm-hmm. and in sport to get stronger, let's just use a simple analogy. We need to load the body. We need to put some strain on the body and to move weight, if you will, um, with some power and some speed. And eventually you've you, you developed some strength. Okay, so time under tension, if you will. But what if the what if your hip, your right hip is really tight and you're just loading it unilaterally? And now your left knee is doing something weird and your right shoulder has to contort in a way because you've got some sort of oddity to your right hip. Mm-hmm. Well, that's called loading dysfunction. So if you've got a dysfunctional way from an early age of how you think about yourself and how you fit into the world, and you believe that you need to perform or to to be validated by by others, then we build this thing called the performance-based identity. Mm. And a performance-based identity is a fast on-ramp. To FOPO. It's a fast on ramp to play this on ramp. 100%. Yes. I can tell you exact, I'm not going to talk about it on air, but I can tell you exactly where that came from for me. I I felt like I had. Oh, to- it was your parents. It's yep. okay. <laughs> Well, par- okay. parents, parents, one of them, <laughs> yeah, and I will not right. specify yeah. which one, although if anybody knows me, they will know, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly yeah. what it is. And that was my on ramp for sure. But they were trying to do their best. I, I, I usually that make is that true. assumption. And that is such an important yeah. point. Is it when no, I yeah. learned that my parents were just human beings, just like me, that was a huge moment for me. Well, Rachel, we live in, in a performance obsessed culture. Mm-hmm. Like from a young age, we are ranked with grades and there's a comparison to other people. And we live in a performance obsessed culture, certainly in the West. So it makes perfect sense to me that we would develop identities around that obsession. Mm -hmm. And that's what a performance-based identity is. It's an identity relative, not to who you are, but it's relative to how well I do something relative to other people. And that is, so now we have to like look outside of ourselves to see how we're actually doing. Where a purpose-based identity, this is an off-ramp. Okay, so an on-ramp to FOPO, Mm -hmm. fear of people's opinions, is a performance-based identity. And I wanna be clear, a performance-based identity can get you really good at something. It, it, it serves to get have just enough anxiety, just that enough so comparison. True. I want to I want to interrupt really you for good. one second, Michael. I want to interrupt you for one yeah. second and say that, but my FOPO, which I am working on eradicating, but my FOPO has been at times the worst part of me, but also it has been the best part of me because that is what has pushed me to have the work ethic that I do and to you know, I mean, and this is roundabout and probably wrong, but so much of my success in life has become because I wanted to please people. And so it's simultaneously the best of me and the worst of me. Yeah. There's a double-edged sword for sure. Mm -hmm. And it'll help you understand the social aspect of the world as well, because you're tuned to it. It's just at what cost. And that's it. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. And and so I, I'm not suggesting that again, that we don't care about people's opinions. That's left for the narcissist and the sociopaths and many of our political leaders, <laughs> you know, like that, that, that's left for them. We can name them. a few, but we won't. Yeah. We won't. Yeah. 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 So that's left for them. Like we do need to care. I think we need to be um, adults 
to, you know, if, if we're talking to adults right now, where there's a rite of passage to adulthood to niche down whose opinions we actually care from and which ones actually matter to us mm-hmm. and then work from that place. But the performance-based identity thing can get you really good. Yeah. And, and, but it won't get you free. Mm-hmm. It won't, it, it, there's the difference between high performance, the path of high performance and the path of mastery. Mm-hmm. So tuning to what other people think can get you into the game of high performance, but not the game of mastery. It's a diff, it's a, just a different path. And it's a richer, deeper path. I think Mm -hmm. you said it a minute ago. You can care what other people think. It matters. Like you said, we're not sociopaths or narcissists over here, but Mm -hmm. just not letting it consume you and control you and and worry about it. That's, that's the difference. That's the difference. And I want to know, you know, how is, how is FOPO learned? And is it in childhood? Is it because of our parents? I mean, I think some people's FOPO is significantly less than others. And some like myself has been significantly more historically. So how, how do we develop our baseline, I guess, of FOPO? Well, in the Western world, I'm not sure we get out of it. I think um, David Foster Wallace, you know, has this beautiful little poem, uh, little, little writings that he wrote, and it's an old fish and two young fish. And they're swimming um, past each other. And the old fish says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim along, you know, not knowing how to respond. And eventually one of the young fish says to the other young fish, what the hell is water? Mm. And it's meant to elicit, like, with some wisdom, you realize the conditions that you're living in. And the two young fish were just swimming along. They didn't realize that they were actually swimming in water. And and yeah. other people's opinions and the obsession of culture um, with performance is the water that we're swimming in. So just recognizing that others' opinions do matter quite mm-hmm. a bit, and there's an there is an ex- a natural excessive worry that comes from a biological perspective, mm-hmm. but making sure that you fit in so you're not kicked out of the tribe. Yes, from a the need to belong, the basic human need. That's to right. Mm-hmm. That's right. From a cultural perspective, meaning that like oh. So I get, when I get celebrated, I make more money. I have more sat status mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. There's like, there's, there's a cultural recognition thing that takes place that feels good. Mm-hmm. And then um, from a, a learned perspective, meaning that how obsessed our parents or our neighborhood is with um, looking the part, you know? And yeah. so if our parents needed a big watch, big car, big bank account, big house and to flex, and we learned that, that then we're going to be more inclined to fit in to mm-hmm. that model. But what if our parents, like they were kind of dropouts or hippies or they, you know, they're like, listen, I'm wearing moccasins and I'm not wearing Gucci. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't like to tell you we're, we're, we're moccasin people here. And I'm, mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm saying moccasins. I'm, I could say <laughs> sand, sandals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sandals is a better way to think about it. Mm-hmm. And um, I was, I was imagining Roman sandals, but Anyways, um, we're Birkenstock so, people or something like that. Exactly. So then, then the message is damped down a little bit, but still, it's still the water that we swim in, especially in the West, because at school, it's about ranking and grades and performance. That's a good and point. And to get into high school and mm-hmm. to college and to get a job and to get into, you know, whatever, like the opinions of other people's really matter. And it's based on how well you've performed in, you know, high pressure situations and so it's just the water we breathe in and Mm -hmm. how much power you're going to give it 
is a bit of rite of passage as an adult. And I think once we become awake to the fact that it is the air we breathe, the water that we're swimming in, um, that we can make some informed decisions about it. Mm-hmm. So that that's that, that's what I I needed this book when I was sixteen, and so oh, yeah, I know it sounds. Well, I think straight, we all need this book when we're sixteen to some degree, <laughs> yeah. right? I needed my parents actually to read it. Is what yeah. I really needed when I was sixteen because oh, yeah. I wasn't reading books at sixteen. Yeah, I know. No, oh, I was so. definitely reading books at sixteen, but um, I've always been a, yeah. a humongous book lover. But so I think for me, all of my stuff that I've been doing the work on. I have found that all of my stuff goes back to one origin point and that is self-worth and feeling like I wasn't enough. And, you know, we're not going to go on into a therapy session for me on here, but I love what probably my favorite part of the book was the concept of conditional self-worth, which is, is, is so powerful. And you write, the more we value things outside our control, the less control we have. And if this is me now, it's dangerous to have our worth and identity based on performance, which mine was for so long. And to have our identity defined by external forces to, uh, this is one of my favorite phrases. I've used, since I read this book, I've used this phrase probably, I don't even know, dozens of times. You write that we outsource our self-worth. So what is the price of conditional self-worth? Because I just feel like you're never going to be your true authentic self if you practice conditional self-worth. You're not going to you're definitely not going to live the best life you could if you practice conditional self-worth. So what what is the price? What is the cost of of not developing our self-worth? Cuz nobody has oh, a you nailed self-worth. It. But what's no, the, you're, what's the you're, price? You're you're nailing it. And I'm so and glad I'm getting add, this cuz that means the work is working, a, Michael. <laughs> yeah, it's working. You've it's got awesome. it. And 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 then I'll add one more to it, which is like, um, people never get to really know you. Exactly. And, and, and the saddest thing is yeah. that if, if you never really got to know you, right? Like so, that's the saddest thing I can think of is that if you don't ever know yourself, cause you're so busy immersing yourself in FOPO or whatever. That's it. You know, it's so when you externalize your sense of self and your worth to the opinion of another, it's very dangerous. But mm-hmm. you never get to know who you are. And in return, they don't get to know you. So you you live a bit more of a lone, a lone feeling in life. There's mm-hmm. a bit of a depression and anxiety that would make perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And it's not lost on either of us that anxiety, depression, addiction, suicidality is on an alarming increase, especially oh, no for doubt. young people. No doubt. Yeah. No, and so yeah. So not 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 that it's just social media's responsibility by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a, it is a wild convergence of things that are taking place Mm -hmm. and our young are more vulnerable um, to a performance-based identity. uh, Oh God, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I grew up without, I mean, I'm born in 1986. So I, social media, I didn't have Facebook until we could not get Facebook until we had a .edu email address and we're in college. So I didn't have social media until I was in college. I never had a MySpace, which is weird to think about now as connected as I, as I am, but, um, to technology and stuff, but I, I didn't have social media until I was in college and I still struggled with all of this. I can't imagine yeah. having to have Instagram when you're nine or something like that. That's just another level. Especially when all of the, the social media platforms are really about expressing highlight reels. And well, so you're yeah, not getting, sure. you're not getting the, the real picture of a person. You're getting the best right. of them only. Right. So, and as adults, yeah, we, just, we understand that, but as a nine-year-old that you're not there yet, you know, you haven't, you can't grasp that yet. It just looks like everybody so we, else's life is perfect. And you know, that yours is not. 
That's exactly it. And so if we can speak to parents for a minute, it's mm -hmm. like um, be super thoughtful about exposing that um, dishonesty in messaging mm -hmm. uh, to a young, to you know the social media platforms, um, the way that they're used. And then also like it, it requires an incredible counter rotation to be about authenticity as opposed to playing that secondary game of having to look a certain way. And it shows up in slippery ways now. It shows up in the way that um, I'll, I'll use this analogy is that kids leave sport, not because it's too hard or it's because it's too challenging. Mm -hmm. They leave sport because of the car ride home oh, wow. because the questions that the parents ask. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it happens. Yeah. It's, it is that, but it's because of the slippery nature that parents ask questions like how, how was practice? And they go, yeah, it was good. Um, how many points did you score? Uh, I didn't, I didn't score any. Well, did Johnny score any? Mm. Um, yeah, I think he scored three. Okay. Well, how many minutes did you get? Um, well, I got like 10 minutes. Mm. Well, did, did Joey get minutes? Yeah, I think he got like 15. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's and that's this a slippery kind of slope right there. Very slippery. Mm. Yeah. So to, to, to your question about like focusing on things that are not in our control versus things that are in our control it's a great way to have conversations with our children is to focus and ask questions about the things that they can ultimately impact and control. And there's very few of those things, you know, like um, it's the quality of your thoughts. It's the way you express your emotions. It's the, the actions that you took or didn't take. It's not whether you scored or not. It's like, did you commit to hitting the ball? Mm -hmm. Did you commit to seeing the ball? Whatever the, the sport analogy would hold up. And and so we want to ask questions both to ourselves and to others about things that are ultimately in our control. And I was part of the Seattle Seahawks for nine seasons. Mm -hmm. And each year um, we would mention winning once, once. Mm -hmm. It was at the beginning of the year. It was after two, three weeks of explaining and working through the culture we wanted to have and the psychological skills we we're going to build and the technical skills we we're going to build and the culture that we wanted to have. And and at the end of that, it was a throwaway comment, usually by the head coach that would say, listen, if we can do what we just talked about for the last handful of weeks and really do it, we just might win the whole thing. Yeah. And we ended up winning, you know, once and we ended up, the, which is hard to do. And, and so the point I'm making here is that it's about your commitment to the process as opposed to um, the out focusing on the things you can't control, which is the outcome. That's so true. That is so true. Don't think about the finish line. Just think about the next step. That's been huge That's right. for me. Well, as we begin to close our time together, and this is, I mean, it's just such a concept that, that resonates with me. It's going to resonate with everyone because we all struggle with this to a degree, but before this is like a pre-question to my next question, but I just want to clarify for my listeners. No, someone's, no one's FOPO is too far gone to be saved. Correct. Would you agree with that? Everybody could improve. hundred percent. Okay. Just, 100%. So with that, with that knowledge listeners, what I, I, if I can, and when I talk to amazing experts like yourself, I love to give listeners a takeaway to obviously buy the book listeners. It's 100% worth the investment, but what is a way that right now, Thank even you. before they purchase the book, listeners can eradicate their FOPO, just a small step, just like that's not, not looking at the finish line right now, but just one tiny step that they can take to work on the FOPO before they go grab your book. Okay. I'll do, I'll do um, three. I've already hit on two of them and I'll add one. 
I have one more. So the first is like David Foster Wallace, just see if it's this water that you're swimming in. See if you are paying a, a lot of attention to what other people think. And mindfulness and awareness is, is half the battle. I feel like just being aware. That's it. That's okay. You're on it. You're totally on it. I'm doing the, I'm the, doing the damn work, Michael. I'm in this. You I'm are. In this yes. I'm never going to, I'm not so, the master, but so, I'm in the work. I'm in it. I'm in yeah. it. Yeah. And, and I'll be clear is that, um, I still am working to and you like always will. lessen. You always yeah. Will. So this is it's biological. It's been around hundreds of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. This need to belong. So and that's why and, waiting for the finish line or working for the finish line is stupid because we're never going to be perfect at this. Never. But it's Amen. just, are we going to be better than we were yesterday? That's the question. Amen. Amen. And so that's the first. Uh, the second is, you know, spend some time and write down your three to five virtues. See if you can shape them into one or two first principles and then practice being about those first principles, you know, on Monday and then um, Monday evening, evaluate that, that I live like in the challenging moments to those first principles and do that on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And that's a nice little practice. The, the third thing is to examine the performance, your identity, and think about the performance-based identity that you might have. And even if you're not very clear, if you're on a performance-based identity or not, recommit to a purpose-based identity. Mm. What, are you, what is your purpose here? And that is an off-ramp. And so get really clear about being tuned to the purpose. All of the historical greats, what, what they did is they were very clear on their principles. They were very clear about their purpose. And then they lived in alignment to those. And even at the cost that many of them died for it. So, so I'm not suggesting that that's the positive outcome. I'm saying that be clear about your virtues and values and first principles, and then be clear about your purpose and then just practice it daily. And then if I could add one small little um, practice is mm-hmm. that I can't imagine living the good life without some sort of contemplative, meditative, mindfulness practice and invest call it three minutes invest in three minutes of meditation today and if you can work your way up to eight minutes okay cool there's some interesting science there about what actually takes place if you could work your way all the way up to 20 minutes in your quote-unquote mind gym i think you'd be so fit to live the good life that you'd surprise yourself of what you're actually capable of so I would start in a very small way with mindfulness. Hmm. That's good. And then, and then listeners grab the book because this yeah. is an investment you want to make. Well, my last question for you, and I've so enjoyed our time together is when readers like me, when, when people close the book, what do you hope they walk away having learned? Or what do you hope they will say at the end of this read? I, I would hope that they would say at the end of it, um, Oh, I feel seen. And I definitely um, did. Yeah. And there's a breath of fresh air of very applied ways that I can start chipping away and being a bit more free. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I would hope is that like, okay, there's a thing here. I'm not alone. And there's very, so at the end of every chapter, there's like, you know, taking it into action. Like what yep. can I do with these insights? Yeah. And if Beethoven had it and Rachel had it, you know, then 
then you know you're not alone you putting so me in the I... same sentence as beethoven is far <laughs> too kind but thank you <laughs> yeah for sure well you're 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 the hero of you know so many so i say well, yeah thanks and I, so, I hope but i'm not beethoven yeah. but anyway yeah it, that's, yeah yeah so good so that's that's my hope well mission accomplished at least for this reader and i want to close with two quotes that i love from the book the first is from david foster wallace you will become way less concerned with what other people think of you when you realize how seldom they do that is the damn truth right there is that i you know i spent so much time worrying about people that probably weren't even thinking about me in the first place and then um, this one's from you on our deathbeds we'll question why we gave others so much power in our lives i'm working so that when i am on my deathbed hopefully in the far distant future i will say i owned every minute of my life because I was in control of it, not other people's opinions. Today, listeners, is your day to change that. If that's not the case for you to take your power back and the way to do that, grab a copy of the first rule of mastery. Stop worrying about what other people think of you, Rachel Birchfield. And it is out as of right now. And Michael, I appreciate this book and your time so much. Oh, I appreciate you as well. Thank you for the fun conversation, Rachel. And um, I'm grateful to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you. As Michael said, if I had access to a book like this at age 16, imagine what I could have used those countless hours on. But all that matters is that I have access to it now, and so do you. And I am eradicating my FOPO in 2024 and going to live the life I was meant to live. Again, the book is called The First Rule of Mastery. Stop worrying about what other people think of you, and it is out right now. Tomorrow is day four of four of this week's January wellness series. Don't worry, we'll have another four episodes next week as well. And we're switching back to physical wellness and how we can calm our anxiety based off of what we eat or don't eat. Totally fascinating conversation. See you tomorrow.